Glory to God. Sounds a little tinty, Jerry. We're testing. All right, can you hear me okay? Good? All right. Well, you ready to look into the Word tonight? We're going to cover a lot of ground looking at some scriptures, but uh, I think it'll be good. If you have your Bible, open up to 1 John, the fourth chapter. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11 and also verse 16. And this is from the God's Word translation. 1 John 4, 8 through 11 says, The person who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. God has shown us his love by sending his only Son into the world so that we could have life through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the payment for our sins. Dear friends, if this is the way God loved us, we must also love each other. Verse 16, we have known and believe that God loves us. God is love. Those who live in God's love live in God, and God lives in them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask you to open our eyes so we can better understand your love. Give us a revelation of your love for us. Help us to see what we need to do to follow your love to manifest in and through our lives. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The more I've studied the attributes of God's character, the more it feels like I'm trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. Like one writer said, it's like trying to take the ocean in your arms or embrace the atmosphere. You come away from your study thinking just how big God is, how he is completely superior to any being we have experienced among men. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 that we know in part and that we now see in a mirror dimly. So when we look at each attribute of God's character, we know we are only going to grasp a part of what of that attribute with our human understanding. And it's important that we don't emphasize one of his attributes over another, or we'll end up with a distorted view of the Father. For about as long as I've lived in this area of Florida, there's been a house on a side street off of SR 54. It has a huge sign in the backyard, and it's facing the side street that warns sinners of the coming judgment of God. It's a Turner Burn kind of message. The person who put that sign up is only emphasizing the attribute of God's character that is just, forgetting that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. It reminds me of a story the famous 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody would tell about a certain man. He had never slept on a feather bed. So one day the man found a single feather, put it on the floor, And slept on it all night. When he woke the next morning sore and stiff, he said, well, if one feather is this hard, I can't imagine what a whole bed of them would feel like. And it reminds me of something Brother Hagin used to say, bless his darling heart and stupid head. Well, the people who see that sign in that guy's yard about the coming judgment of sinners might conclude the same thing, that God, this heart, I don't stand a chance with him, so why bother? Then there's others who emphasize only the goodness of God. And some go as far as saying that, well, since God is such a good God, he won't send people to hell. Well, here's the thing about heaven and hell. No one is in either place by accident. 
Hell is populated by people who chose to go there. Well, they might not have chosen the destination, but they chose the pathway. If you got on I-95 in Florida and drove north for the full length of the interstate, you shouldn't be surprised when you end up at the Canadian border. I'm not saying the Canadian border is equivalent to hell. I'm just using it as an example. Because the map shows that is the final destination. You could have taken hundreds of exits along the way, but for one reason or another, you chose to stay on that path. People are in hell because they love the way that leads to darkness. And they were free to stay on that path because God granted them that much freedom. Everyone in heaven is there because he or she chose to go there and took the pathway that led them there. No one wakes up to find himself in heaven by accident. No, we all go to the place where we belong based on our own choices. When God looks at a sinner who still loves his sin and rejects the atonement purchased by the blood of Jesus, justice condemns him to die, which means eternal separation from God. Excuse me. When God looks at a sinner who accepts the blood of the everlasting covenant, justice sentences him to live, meaning eternal union with God. God is just in doing both things. The unjust sinner can no more go to heaven than the justified sinner can go to hell. So it's important to remember that the attributes of God's character work in unison. The love of God and the mercy of God do not override the justice of God to let the sinner off the hook. No, the love of God and mercy of God provided a way to satisfy the claims of justice through the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God. Amen? Amen? I want to continue tonight looking at the character of God. In past messages, we talked about the fact that he is self-existent and unchanging. He's not limited to time or space, and he knows everything past, present, and future. We said that those aspects of his character are attributes that only he possesses. We also talked about his holiness and his faithfulness. And we said these are moral attributes that believers can and should possess to some degree as they grow in their walk with God. Today I want to look at the moral attribute of God's character called love. When we looked at God's holiness in a previous message, we understood that he is unapproachable in our sinful human flesh. But in his love, we find that he approaches us. In our text of 1 John 4, 9 that we looked at earlier, we see that God demonstrated his love by sending his only son into the world so that we could have life through him. So the New Testament in its original text is Greek. The Greek language uses four different words for love. Eros describes a sensual relationship. Our English word erotic comes from this Greek word. Storge pertains to family relationships and obligations. Phileo describes the love between close friends. And then there's a fourth word that describes a totally unselfish love that comes from God alone. This Greek word is agape. We've all heard that before, right? It's one of the rarest words in the Greek language. And it's found almost nowhere in Greek literature apart from the New Testament. But it is one of the most common words within the New Testament. It's the type of love that chooses to continue selflessly loving someone even when he or she makes it difficult. Just a little side note, if you look at John 21, there's an exchange between Jesus and Peter. This is after Jesus 
rose from the dead and after Peter had um, uh, betrayed, uh, well, he, he said he denied knowing him. And you can see from this exchange, if you just look at the English, you don't catch it. But if you look at the Greek, you'll see that there was something still unresolved in Peter that he had to resolve. Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonas, love thou more than more than the love me more than the others. Jesus was using the word agape. Peter said, Lord, you know, I phileo you. I love you as a friend. Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you agape me? He said, Lord, I phileo you. And I can imagine Peter was feeling a little uncomfortable because by the third time, Jesus said, Peter, do you phileo me? And it said Peter was troubled by that. And if you just read the English, you think he's troubled because of the repetition, but it's more than that. Jesus came down to that lesser version of love. And Peter knew where he was at at that point. But obviously we see that Peter went on and uh, loved the Lord to his death. But it's an interesting uh, exchange of of the Greek words. So agape, or the God kind of love, means to value, esteem, feel or manifest genuine concern for to be faithful towards, and to delight in. When we say God is love, we mean that it permeates his being and conditions all that he does. Picture pulling out a sponge that's been soaking in a bucket of water for several hours. Every portion of that sponge is filled with water. That's the best physical analogy I could think of to understand the spiritual reality of God and his love. You can't touch that soaked sponge without getting wet. Likewise, you can't come in contact with God without experiencing agape. Love is his very nature. Let's look at some facts about God's love. First of all, it is not influenced. That means there's nothing you can do to cause him to love you. There's nothing you can do to cause him to love you less. And there's nothing you can do to cause him to love you more. He loves you. Because he chooses to love you. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, Moses told the children of Israel, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you. Jesus told his disciples, and that includes you and me, You did not choose me, but I chose you. What was there in us? To attract the heart of God. Absolutely nothing. In fact, there was everything in us to repel him. And yet Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Glory to God. That's much different from natural human love, isn't it? Natural human love is selfish and has the underlying thought, What have you done for me lately? We become conditioned to believe we have to earn the love of others. And so we expect the same in our relationship with God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. But we'll start with verse 3. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. God's picture of us before our conversion is not very flattering, is it? We profess to know all the answers. We're actually quite foolish, unable to comprehend spiritual truths and unwise in our choices and conduct. We were disobedient to God and often to authorities. We were deceived by the devil in our own perverted judgment. Unlovable, selfish. We were often miserable and made those around us miserable. Much of the world today fits that description. This dismal picture of man's depravity is interrupted in the scriptures by one word, but. In verse 4, but, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. One of the simplest, clearest truths of the gospel is the most difficult for people to receive. Salvation is not based on good works. It is based on faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, who by the grace of God paid the price for our sins. Through Jesus, we become heirs of all that God has prepared for those who love him. Hallelujah. Amen. Another fact about God's love is it is eternal. God himself is eternal, and God is love. So as God had no beginning, his love had none. Think about this. His love was in operation even before there were created beings for him to lavish that love upon. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Ephesians 1.4-5 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. What a thrill it is to know that the great and holy God loved his people before heaven and earth were called into existence. That he had his heart set upon us from all eternity. It might make your mind go tilt, but it also makes your knees want to bend in adoration and worship to him. Amen. Amen. Just as his love has no beginning, it has no end. He never ceases to love us. We see this illustrated beginning in John 13. Jesus had retired with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem for a final time of fellowship with them before going to his trial and crucifixion. That very night, one of the apostles would say, show us the Father. But another one would betray him. And still another would deny him with cursings. All but John would forsake him. And yet John 13:1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of his earthly ministry and continues to love them throughout eternity. 
And therein is the tragedy of all those on the path of darkness. God has loved them from before the foundation of the world and is not willing that they should perish, but he will never force people to choose him. Another fact about God's love is that it never conflicts with his holiness. It's not controlled by passion or sentiment. It's not some weak emotional feeling or effeminate softness. His love is pure. It doesn't wink at sin. It's the kind of love that will rebuke when necessary. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6 says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Why does the Lord discipline those he loves? Because he wishes to correct him for their good and for his glory. His discipline then is correction. And one way correction comes is by the Holy Spirit who is inside of you. Several years ago, my wife and I had a desire to go to Kenneth Hagin's Winter Bible Seminar in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I figured what the cost of the trip would be and realized we didn't have the money for it. Now, my wife was a stay-at-home mom at that time, so everybody knows that you can't trust God for finances when you only have one income, right? (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) But, man of faith that I was, I told my wife we couldn't afford to go. Well, unbeknownst to me, my wife had a little chat with the Lord after this talk that we had, and she asked him to bring the money in. But she said, bring it in in such a way that my husband would know unequivocally that it came from you and was specifically for this trip. That's pretty bold, isn't it? She's a bold woman. Well, a short time after that, Jack Coe Jr. was speaking at our church, and out of the blue, he came over to me, took my hand, and said, walk with me. Man, I'm going to get choked up just remembering this. We began walking back and forth across the front of the auditorium in full view of about two or 300 people. I don't remember what he said because I was sobbing like a baby. I felt like I was walking with Jesus. We did this for about a minute or two, I'm guessing, but I mean, time sort of stopped for me at that point. And then Jack Coe Jr. stopped, turned to the congregation, and he said, I've never done this before. He said, but I feel impressed to take up an offering for this man. Well, I knew the money was for the trip to Tulsa. When we got the check, it was $300 short of what we needed. And my heart sank a bit. Driving home from work the next day, I said, Lord, I thank you for the money we got, but we still need $300 more. Now, I didn't hear his response in an audible voice, but it was loud and clear on the inside of me. He said, well, your wife believed for the bulk of it, I'd like you to believe for the rest. That was divine correction. That was a rebuke done in love. I made some adjustments quickly in my heart and in my head, and within a few weeks we received a money order in the mail from an anonymous donor for $300. A friend of ours stayed with the kids, and we went and had a blessed week in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Winter Bible Center. Saw some... Yeah, we saw some pretty unusual moves of the Spirit in that, that week, so it was a blessed, blessed time. We said earlier that love is one of those moral attributes of God 
that we believers can and should possess. Romans 5.5 tells us we already have that love if we've been born again. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's referring to agape, a God kind of love. Well, it's clear that just because every believer has a God kind of love residing on the inside of them doesn't mean every believer is exercising that love. Can I get a witness here? Yeah. How would we know if someone is operating in the God kind of love? Well, it would look a lot like, no, not a lot like, it would look just like 1 Corinthians 13. So let's take a look at part of that chapter in the Message New Testament. He says, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. Boy, that paints a picture, doesn't it? If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. I want to stop. Let's not gloss over this verse here. I recently started reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, which chronicles the persecution of the church down through the ages. And it's pretty sobering reading. You have to take it in little bits. We in America have been blessed for over two centuries to practice our faith with relatively little pushback from our society. That has not been the norm for most of church history. When you read what people suffered for their faith in Jesus, and you know, Paul wrote this, um, Nero was the emperor, and, and many of the original apostles were, were martyred under his rule. He was a spawn of Satan. Um, he was Satan personified. He only lived to be 30 and committed suicide. But he would make have these coats dipped in wax, put them over Christians, and light them as human torches to light up his garden, his imperial gardens. Boy, timing is everything. <laughs> so these kind of things were happening even during Paul's time. So when he writes this, um, he, he knows what he's talking about. And you understand that walking in love is not an option. It is everything. So no matter what I say, this 1 Corinthians 13 continues, so no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. That means when love is provoked, it endures patiently without being filled with resentment, indignation, or revenge. Remember that the next time someone cuts you off on US 19. I'm I'm preaching to myself here. Love cares more for others than for self. It is courteous and seeks to be useful to others. Love not only seizes on opportunities for doing good, but searches for them. It sounds like the Lord, whose eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. It continues, love doesn't want what it doesn't have. If we love our brother and sister, we will not envy when they are blessed, but will rejoice with them. There was a story, we had a guest speaker one time uh, that also pastored a small church in northern Florida. And he told this story and it stuck with me because I thought, what a cool idea. 
He said, when any, anybody in the church got a brand new car and brought it to the church, everybody in the congregation went out and oohed and awed over that car and just rejoiced with it. That car owner just, you know, rejoicing for what God had blessed them with. And, and when you have that kind of atmosphere, there's no, there's no room for envy. It's just, yeah, we're glad for you. And the expectation that I'm next, you know. Yeah. Hallelujah. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first. In short, love prefers others above ourself. Doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything. I think a better rendering of that line is to bear all things, which means love won't needlessly publicize the faults of others. Just the opposite of what you see on social media. So if you want to know what to do in love, just do the opposite of what you see on social media. Trust God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back, but keeps going to the end. That's what agape love is. Agape love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We only know a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. I like that. When the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. Glory to God. I want to close two ways tonight. First of all, I want to pray uh, for you and those that are watching online. The prayer that Paul prayed to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And after I do that, I want to take a moment to pray uh, in another vein. And I'll get to that when we, when we, after we do this. So let's just, uh, let me pray for you. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And now I want us to, to do one other thing. This is just, I, I had this impressed upon me as going through this message. This message is about the love of God, but there was definitely, you know, you start out writing a message thinking you're going to go a certain way, but, but then you start getting pulled in different directions and, um, it impressed me that the Lord was, was, uh, there was a lot about salvation in this and people that would be lost and, and going to hell. And I felt impressed to, to give us an opportunity. Every one of us here knows somebody, whether a family member or a friend or an acquaintance that you know isn't right with the Lord. Maybe they've never known the Lord or maybe they're just completely out of fellowship with the Lord. 
Uh, I'm thinking of a, of a young man right now who I work with, who is father is a godly man and and I believe he was a, a Christian strong walked with the Lord at one time but he just lost his job because uh, he had a drinking problem and he's on my heart heavy but everybody here has somebody on their heart I want us to take just about a few seconds I'm going to have some quiet I want you to think think of that person let them come to your mind and then I'm going to lead us in prayer for that Now, Father, we lift these people up to you, these people that you've, the Spirit of God has put in our hearts and in our minds. And we pray, Father, first of all, that the blinders would be taken off their eyes. Satan, you will not blind them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray now, with the blinders off, that you would send people across their path, people that are walking closely with you, I feel like I'm supposed to share this. Because um, I think this will help us with, our, with this prayer. When I first became a Christian, um, I was baby Christian, didn't know anything about the things of God. And, and there was a young man, uh, we lived in a trailer park back then. And there was a young man um, who went to the church I got saved in, and I He'd been a Christian for some time, and yet there were things that he did and things that he said that just just sort of went sort of cross grain in my head, and it was confusing me. And I'm thinking, well, is that what being a Christian is about? Because it, it just bothered me. And uh, I was having a time in prayer, actually with another couple, and. Uh, while I was praying, I had my eyes closed. This is not something that's happened, but maybe two or three times in my lifetime. I had my eyes closed, and um, I had a vision. I saw this billboard, and on the billboard was, there was a bright lights going on and off on this billboard. When the light would hit it, I saw all these words that were that might have could have been Arabic. It made no sense to me. It was just confusion. And then that was it. And everybody else had stopped praying, and I felt, man, I need to keep praying. So when I got home, I went back in my bedroom and continued praying, and I had the second part of the vision. And in the second part of the vision, I was looking down this long, long hallway, long aisle. <clears throat> On each side of the aisle were soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, perfectly erect, all lined up. And I could see down at the end there was a throne, and I knew it was the throne of God. I couldn't see other than just to know that, that the throne was there. And all these, what I considered soldiers, were lining up, leading to that throne. And that was the end of that. I had no clue what this meant. And it was days. Um, and I was walking and carrying the groceries, and it just hit me. The Lord just showed it to me. He said, 
the Christian that you have been listening to is the Christians are a light of the world, but if they're not walking with me, it's like that blinking spotlight. Sometimes they're on, sometimes they're off. But if you look to those people, you're going to be confused. Another, and that was the spotlight on the, on the billboard with the jumble. And then he said, you look for those that are standing upright before me. Those are the ones that will draw you to me. It was a very simple, and, and I knew that's what it meant. And so I was always, from that point forward, more aware of not just taking people at face value, because they said they were a believer. But as I was just starting to pray over these people, I saw those soldiers in my head again. Those are the people we want coming across their path. So let's continue praying. Father, those those that are upright before you, that are walking strong with you, that these people would listen to, send them across your path, their path with the message of your love and your salvation through the blood of Jesus. And then, Holy Spirit, we ask you to do your ministry, which is to quicken that word to their heart and let faith rise up in their heart so that they can lay hold of salvation through Jesus Christ. And Father, we're asking you to put all of these things in place. And we are expecting great testimonies of salvations. People coming to you for the first time. People turning back to you after being gone for so long. We thank you for it, Father. We leave it in your hands. We'll not get in the way of what you do unless you lead us to do it. And we thank you for the results. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise God. Covered a lot of ground there. (laughs) Glory to God.